Blog Talk Radio. Welcome one and all. This is your host, Robert Rogers. I'm the founder of the famous Parkinson's Recovery in 2004. So we've been kicking around ideas that offer options for individuals who currently experience the symptoms of Parkinson's disease now for 12 marvelous years. The mission is to identify any and any anything that might offer an option that helps people heal from the neurological condition that has been diagnosed as Parkinson's disease. My guest today is quite a remarkable and an incredible individual, I might say, at the outset. Dr. Daniels has a, a quite incredible history of her background. She graduated from Nottingham High School in, of all places, Syracuse, New York. She attended Harvard and Radical, uh, Radcliffe College. Of course, that's a very famous uh, college in the East Coast. She was distinguished as a National Merit Achievement Scholar and a Radcliffe National Scholar. Dr. Daniels entered the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and at the same time completed her studies at the Wharton School. Get that. So she also has an MBA in addition to a medical degree. She received her medical degree and her MBA concurrently at the end of, hold on to your seats, four years. So she did both of those degrees in the remarkable time frame of just four years. Dr. Daniels, Thank you so much, speaking on behalf of our many thousands of listeners, for being on the program today. You're welcome. So tell us all about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I started life out as an 18 high school graduate, true believer. I was determined, absolutely determined, that I was going to go to medical school, I was going to be a doctor, I was going to help people heal, so they could take control of their lives and, and start businesses and, and raise families and do whatever they want to do with their lives. That was my big ambition. And so in order to do that, of course, I need to get into medical school. And so I reasoned that I should go to the college that had the highest admission rate of applicants to medical school, and that was Harvard. So if you're a black female graduating from Harvard, your chances of uh, getting admitted to medical school are 97%. I said, wow, I can definitely do that. And so I got admitted to Harvard. And what I didn't realize, looking at that statistic, was more than half of the people who start out pre-med at Harvard don't end up pre-med. So the real chance of getting into medical school then dropped to 50%. But nobody told me, and I wasn't that sophisticated. So as I was going on at Harvard, I was doing very well. Uh, around junior year, it became clear to me that I was definitely going to get into medical school. So I said, okay, this is it. i got to get my plan together, you know, for healing, uh, almost for healing the world, but at least healing my little neighborhood in Syracuse. It's going to go back to Syracuse and heal my little ghetto, you know. And so I went to the, the library looking up the relationship between what doctors do and longevity and good health. And I was stunned and floored to find that in this big, huge, Widener library, um, it was unanimous. There was absolutely no relationship between medical care and longevity or medical care and health. And I said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm getting involved in this medical thing, 
and I just got the final word that it's useless. It's not going to make anybody healthy. So then I said, well, back then, Kennedy was uh, putting forth a national health insurance plan. I said, well, let me look at the national health insurance plan. And so I expected that I was going to read this plan for making people healthy. It wasn't that at all. It was a plan for making sure hospitals and doctors got paid. And I said, well, that's nice to know that there's a possibility I'll get paid, but this has nothing to do with getting anybody healthy. Oh, my God, this is not good. But, of course, as with many things, I was too far in at that point, and so I made up my mind that I would only go to medical school if I didn't have to borrow any money to do it, because obviously there's a good chance I wouldn't make any money when I graduated, especially if what they're teaching me wasn't going to help. And two, that I would regard my education in medical school as a starting point and that I would realize I'd have to add something to it to try and help people get healthy. Meanwhile, in this massive world-famous library, I also found a book that said what people did need to get uh, healthy and live longer. They needed um, good and adequate food. They needed um, shelter to protect them from things like rain and snow. They needed uh, clean water. And that's it. So food, clothing, and shelter. And uh, that determined how healthy someone's going to be. I said, well, while I'm practicing medicine, I will pay attention to those things. And so I got to medical school, and uh, they told us half of everything we were being taught was false. And they didn't know which half. They're teaching us the whole thing. And every four years, another 50% would be false. So to me, that was pretty devastating. I'm like, you guys need to get a better accuracy rate than this. You need to call a truth committee. Here's a problem. And um, so I went through uh, medical school, and each semester I realized that nobody was getting better. So I went straight to the dean. I said, look, I'm going back to the inner city ghetto. They don't believe in malpractice. They believe in getting even. So I need something that's going to work. And I haven't seen any solutions or effective stuff yet. You guys got to, you know, show me the good stuff. They kept telling me, well, next semester, Jennifer, next semester. And finally, it was the second semester of my fourth year, and I realized that it wasn't coming. But I still went back to the dean, and the dean said, uh, you know, this is why we have a residency. So in a residency, you're going to learn a whole lot. I said, okay, that's good. And then he said, well, did you ever think of not going back to that ghetto? Maybe you could practice someplace else. So <laughs> I said, no, 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 I've made up my mind. I'm going back. He said, oh, okay. So I went into residency, and that was just shocking. It was shocking. Nothing but death and carnage everywhere. The the murder was just stunning. I mean, it got so bad. And one day I sat down in the cardiac care unit, and I said, man, one day the cops are going to bust this place and arrest everybody. (laughs) I I was just that uh, overcome how we were actually killing people. And so... I, I, I said, man, I don't want to be here when the cops come. And I certainly don't want to be blamed for anything. And so I actually submitted my resignation. And this is all in my book, uh, Murdered by Medicine is No Accident, uh, The Lethal Dose, Why Your Doctor is Prescribing It. And that's on, um, on Amazon. And so uh, I submitted my resignation, and, I can, and the uh, head of medicine called me into his office and said, you can't resign. I said, yeah, sure I can. <laughs> I'm a free person. I can walk away. And he said, uh, well, you know, if you walk away, you'll never become a doctor. I said, well, you know, that, that's okay. If I stay here, I'll never become a doctor. And so we had a little discussion, and he said, okay, look, here's the deal. If you stay, 
you don't have to do anything that you think might be harmful for a patient. You have the right to tell the senior doctor no. It's okay, good. And then if they pick on me, can I be just as rude and mean to them as they are to me? He says, yes, you can. It's okay, good. And um, what the other, so the other, my other colleagues uh, who were training with me called the meeting trying to get me to not quit. And they told me that I was the only one who answered my beeper and that they were saving them, their, their, they messed around all day long and they just had me do all their day work after hours. I was wondering why I was working continually from 5 p.m. till 6 a.m. the next morning. I said, mm, these nights are busy. <laughs> my colleagues are saving their work for me. So uh, I decided to stay on uh, when he promised to exempt me from the killing field. And so that's what I did. I, I didn't, if, if I could see that what they were asking me to do was going to harm somebody, I would just ask the attending to do it himself, and he would do it himself. And, you know, that's the way that worked out. So then I ended up, I went to uh, Hayward, Wisconsin, where I was the medical director of an Indian health clinic. And so I was in charge. And I said, okay, half of what I'm, I've learned is, is, is useful, so we're going to find out right now. And uh, we were told in medical schools, the reason nobody got better was because these people were poor. Medical schools, as you notice, are always in inner city poor areas. And uh, the people are ignorant and they're, they're not compliant. So I rigged it so that the pharmacist was right there in the same building, and as soon as they walked out of my office for prescription, they walked into the pharmacy, got their prescription, and walked out the front door of the clinic. So we had 100%, everyone had their medication, and then we also had contact with at least one relative to verify compliance. And still nobody got better, and that's when I said, oh my God, there's a problem over here. And meanwhile, at the time, I was in excellent health, and so I ate a lot of vegetables. And so I would give everyone a vegetable list of what to eat, and we started curing arthritis and diabetes, and it was great. And then, of course, I got called in, and they said, hey, you know, you're, you're overstepping your bounds. You're not allowed to give any information out on diet at all. We have a dietitian. And, of course, the dietitian was telling them to eat margarine, uh, eat smaller pieces of bread, drink your milk, you know, all these things that we now know are devastating to your health. And so that was my first introduction to the medical industrial complex in a big way where doctors are actually vetted from getting people better and policies are put in place to make people sick. I, I was very naive, though. I didn't see it that way. I just thought, well, that's okay. You know, this is a, a big uh, organization, and when I grow up, I'm going to have my own medical office, and I won't have this problem. Just a minute. All right, I'm back. Okay. So I thought it was a problem of a lack of autonomy, you know. So then I went to uh, back to my ghetto after I fulfilled my obligation to the government. I purchased a city block, built a medical office building, and started practicing medicine. And um, I noticed that the stuff I was learning in medical school was, did not work. It was truly devastating. And I noticed that people were, were actually dying. People in my practice were dying mysteriously. And so I went back and reviewed all the charts of everyone who died. And I noticed that every one of them was fully diagnosed and fully medicated. And I thought this can't be a coincidence. You know, 100% of the deaths have been properly treated according to the standard of care and everything that I was taught in medical school. 
And that's when it hit me. I said, you know what? Could it be that they're teaching me to kill people and harm people? I mean, I actually couldn't sleep for months trying to sort this out. So what I finally figured out was I would give everyone a choice between uh, the standard of care, uh, eating vegetables, changing the diet, doing nothing, and everyone got the lecture. Here, we're putting you on this medication. It may have side effects. Here are some side effects. If you notice these side effects, stop this medicine. And um, the death rate went to zero, zero percent death rate the following year. And from that point on, whenever um, somebody had a problem, I always gave them a choice. But I would also go to the library, go to the medical school library, and I'd have a list of diseases. And I'd look up in the medical school library, dietary treatment of fill-in-the-blank. And that was the basis of my education in natural healing. Literally, all of these studies validating um, diet and nutrition therapy are in the medical school library. Well, what a fascinating Thanks, story. Yeah. So, uh, so people are coming, oh, Dr. Deals, did you take an herbal course? Oh, Dr. Deals, did you go ask a natural plastic doctor? No, I went straight to the research. And so what happens then is there's a tremendous amount of medical research about naturally curing just about anything you might want to think about, but that is not the part of the medical school library that's shared with medical students in medical school. And it's not what's shared with doctors, um, either from drug reps or during continuing medical education. The whole educational system is designed and controlled by hospitals who need more sick people to fill their beds, by insurance companies who need more sick and fearful people to buy insurance, and by drug companies who need more sick people taking drugs. And so there is no constituency for digging through the medical library and literally exhuming this incredible body of knowledge about natural healing. So you were living in Syracuse and working some there. Where do you live now? I live in Panama. And how did you come to live there? (laughs) So I was uh, minding my own business, so I thought, in my little ghetto, in my little office, on my city block. And I remembered what I read in those books at Harvard, that people's access to shelter, uh, you know, a safe living environment and good food, that that was where it was at. So I took this to heart. And I got involved and started reading the zoning laws and agitated and organized people and got drug dens demolished and shut down and um, single-family homes built that people actually bought themselves and you know without government subsidies. And um, then I was on a roll. And one day I became aware of a fifty no thirty million dollar bond issue is what they called it. But as you know, I have an MBA. So I dug a little deeper, 
And it was a $30 million signature loan without collateral. I said, whoa, that's a bank heist. That's what that is. And um, so, of course, being my naive person that I was, I alerted the proper authority. That would be the mayor and the state legislatures and education committee and everyone who could possibly do anything about it. And they all said, oh, Dr. Daniels, this is way too complicated. You're just a doctor. You can't possibly understand business. And first someone piped up and said, but she's got an MBA from Wharton. I said, oh. So long story short, uh, I was ignored at every level. And I said, wait, it's a bank robbery. Let me let the bank know. I'll tell the banks are being robbed. <laughs> so um, I got citizens to write little letters, just two sentences, I don't want my government to borrow this money, and if they borrow it, I do not want them to pay it back. And I told them you can write anything else you want. And so I got 300 letters like this, and then I put a cover letter to it saying, Dear Banker, uh, I'm aware that you're considering this loan, um, and based on the letter of credit, um, these four reasons, blah, 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 are reasons why you should not make this loan there is no collateral. Uh, there is no uh, secondary income stream. It's a paper corporation formed only for the purpose of receiving your $30 million. And if you make this loan, you will never see your money. And if you try to collect, you'll have to use such draconian measures that it will make your third world tactics appear genteel. Your most humble and faithful servant, Dr. Jennifer Daniels. And so I sent the whole packet off to the bank. Oh, my God. It took about two weeks. I didn't get a response. But they sent the bankers to Syracuse to interrogate the very people I had alerted and who had ignored me. But each one of them had to make time to talk to the bankers. And then the bankers flew out of town. And then there's this big, huge article in the paper saying, bankers have come. They need A, B, C, D information so they can deliberate. I look at the paper and I said, you know, I have that information, but I'm busy. I'm practicing medicine. So I practiced medicine, ignored it. And three days later, bankers are still waiting for information. And they listed the information in here. I said, oh, I guess I better write that letter. So I wrote them a letter answering all their questions. And then three days later, in the newspaper, it said, bankers have received this information and are deliberating. So the bankers decided not to finance this thing, not to give away the $30 million and be robbed. And I did not know the governor had already been bribed to make sure it went through. So then everything came crumbling down. Yes. Oh. <laughs> yes, the, the licensing board started calling, the labor board started calling, oh my God. And so, um, long story short, I lost my license. Which I thought, eh, no big deal. A lot of folks in the United States don't have licenses, and they do pretty good, so I'm not going to get too cracked up about it. Uh, I'll go look for work. And then uh, a few weeks later, I get a letter saying I'm on a do not employ list. And I said, ah, that's a pretty small do not employ list. I can get other jobs. And then I got another letter saying I'm on a second do not employ list, which is pretty broad. And I said, oh, well... I was working for myself before. I guess I'll have to start another business. Let me go catch a plane and go talk to some friends. 
And so when I tried to fly, I realized I was on the terrorist list. So then I decided I had a real problem. And that's when I decided I should leave the country while I still could. And you did. Yes, and I'm living happily ever after. I was in Panama, you know, met a nice guy, got married, and so things are pretty good. And I'm working on the Internet. My goodness, what an incredible story. Now, you have worked with individuals who have Parkinson's symptoms. What is the history behind Parkinson's disease? I'm glad you asked because I am, I may not sound like it, but I am 59 years old. A couple weeks, I'll be 59. You sound 29. Thank you. People say I look 29, too. But, uh, so I was involved in this back in 1979 when I first entered medical school. The thing to know about Parkinson's way back when was it was an extremely, extremely rare disease. And it was exclusively a disease of the middle class. In other words, poor people did not get Parkinson's disease. This is very interesting. And, of course, you know, medics were, were, uh, we always talk about genetics. And so back then, Parkinson's was considered to be 50% genetics. So if your father had Parkinson's, it was believed that he was transmitting it through a dominant Parkinson's gene to his offspring. So half of his offspring would get Parkinson's disease by the time they were, say, 50 years old. And literally, people were getting themselves tested for the Parkinson's gene and committing suicide if they had the gene. This was back in uh, 1979 to 83. Michael called the Dark Ages, what the heck. Fast forward, it's now 2016. 30% of Parkinson's cases are believed to be genetic in terms of familial. And 5% of sporadic cases are believed to be genetic. So wait, back up, back up. 95% of Parkinson's cases, the sporadic cases, are not genetic. That's important to know. If 95% are not genetic, how can the 5% be genetic? It must be a coincidence. That's the definition of coincidence, by the way. In fact, they taught us that in medical school, that um, statistically... There's something called a 95% confidence in the interval. And so if something is, is true, then you will have 5% false negatives. So in other words, if I do a blood test on you for anemia, line up 100 people, check them all for anemia, 100 healthy people, five of them are going to show as anemic when actually they're not anemic. And so their test for anemia being positive is due to luck alone. So if we apply this literally to Parkinson's disease, we have 95% of those who get Parkinson's sporadically have no genetic association. But 5% do have a genetic association. So that genetic association must by statistical mathematical definition, be due to chance alone. Wow. 
let that sink in. So a lot of questions, one question people might have is should I get the genetic test for Parkinson's? The answer is no, because the association between the gene and Parkinson's is equal to chance alone, like flipping a coin, for example. What it becomes heads or tails is chance alone. I'm your host, Robert Rogers, founder of Parkinson's Recovery. My guest today is Dr. Daniels. Her website is www.vitalitycapsules.com. So let me spell that for you a little slower. www.vitalitycapsules.com the word vitality, and then the second word joined together with that is capsules, C-A-P-S-U-L-E-S dot C-O-M. Dr. Daniels, what types of natural treatments have you discovered help your patients who currently experience Parkinson's symptoms? So, Parkinson's is now much, much more widespread. So in four years of medical school, I don't think I saw even one patient with Parkinson's disease. And that's a pretty huge statement when you consider I trained at a tertiary care, Ivy League uh, teaching facility with a hospital attached. So now, uh, being out of medical school, um, I've seen Parkinson's, you know, many uh, cases of Parkinson's. And so obviously it cannot possibly be genetic if the frequency of the disease is increasing in the population. The only way for it to be genetic is if Parkinson's people are just incredibly fertile and having, you know, <laughs> 8, 10, 12 children. Right. So everyone I know with Parkinson's has, you know, like maybe two or three kids. So the fact that Parkinson's disease is increasing in the population uh, tells us that it can't possibly be genetic because the genetic mix is, is pretty stable. And those who have Parkinson's are not big reproducers. Um, so naturally speaking, so, so the question then, what is causing Parkinson's? The other clue about the cause of Parkinson's is that it has a constellation of symptoms that can fluctuate in intensity and are not the same for each person. That's not a disease. That's a syndrome. In other words, um, that's a syndrome with a common cause that we need to identify. And most likely it's environmental and most likely it's poisoning. So people are literally being poisoned uh, the nervous systems are being poisoned, and that is what's causing Parkinson's disease. Uh, so what's the, what's the, the remedy that I found? Um, most of you out there have already figured out you need to start eating organic. You can't have any pesticides. Um, many pesticides are actually neurotoxins, and that is what Parkinson's is. It's a poisoning of the central nervous system and a portion of the brain. So you need to definitely eat 100% organic. Some people refer to something like the organic label. I think that's a nice starting place, but that's not enough. You actually need to 
um, go so far as to start with organic seeds and grow your own stuff. The English translation for that is start sprouting stuff on your countertop. You can eat part of it raw and eat part of it cooked. But that's what you need to do. You need to actually take back control of your food supply. Next thing that people with Parkinson's need to do is they need to minimize their intake of meat. Minimize means like mm, one piece of meat or, or two pieces of meat a week, and that's pretty much it. That's, uh, that's all there is. And so what this does is this allows people to heal. What's the problem with the meat? Back when I first started helping people, I did not understand what the problem was with the meat. I thought the problem with the meat was, well, that it was meat. <laughs> but that's not the problem with the meat. The problem with the meat is that they're fed hormones and antibiotics, which basically act as surrogate nerve toxins. And the other problem with the meat is that, uh, you know, the way they're grown hormones uh, disease. So that's really the problem uh, with the meat. So minimize it to twice a week, and then, of course, it's worth uh, taking up hunting as a hobby. If you want meat, you know, go shoot it. And uh, right. that meat that you shoot is not going to have antibiotics and um, other poisons. So that's important. The other problem with Parkinson's, again, it's still... My observation is very much a middle-class disease. So people who have disposable income have Parkinson's disease. What does that mean? That means a big part of your Parkinson's disease is what you're spending your disposable income on. So let's go down the list. Maybe you're in the habit of shopping for clothes. Maybe you even buy new clothes. What's wrong with that? Um, Most new clothes in the United States now are packed and shipped in formaldehyde, a neurotoxin. So, if I had Parkinson's, I would definitely switch over to used clothing. Something someone else has already washed at least 10 or 20 times. Um, and then I would also, um, if you're going to buy clothes, wash them several times before you wear them. Um, buy natural fiber clothing like um, cotton or wool and even go so far as to get organic cotton fabrics. So your clothing is a problem. What about your personal care products? That's a problem. Now, I will say most people that I've met with Parkinson's have been male. So maybe these guys use cologne or shaving cream, um, you know, whatever your personal care products are, they're a part of your problem. So you just need to switch them all out to something, I would say natural, but I'll be even more blunt, something homemade. So your, what's your deodorant going to be? It's going to be baking soda or some essential oil. Um, what's your shaving cream going to be? Uh, you know, maybe some uh, Dr. Bronner's soap, uh, lather it up and, and shave. So you really have to minimize um, your personal care products. And if you're dyeing your hair because it's great, you know, just like, get over it. <laughs> Don't do it. So that's personal care products. Um, the other thing about middle-class people is they tend to move to places called subdivisions. 
So what's a subdivision? A subdivision is generally a toxic waste dump or former farmland, even worse, laced with pesticides where they build these beautiful homes. So you need to research what this place is that you live in. If it used to be farmland, then you're living on a toxic dump that's going to make you sick and give you health problems. So you need to consider moving um, and consider moving to a place um, that's not intrinsically toxic. What else do people with disposable incomes do? They eat at restaurants. This is a very bad thing. Um, you know, I can't even go into all the reasons why you shouldn't eat at a restaurant. But the point is, if you start eating food cooked from scratch at home, uh, that's a big part of curing your Parkinson's. Now, once you've done all that, and that sounds like a lot, you're, you're still not home. You just, you've got a, a foundation for healing. And the next step is, if you look at your Parkinson's drug really carefully, you'll see that their side effects are identical to the symptoms of Parkinson's disease. So, not taking drugs of any kind is also another part of healing your Parkinson's. You can't expect to heal your nervous system while you're poisoning it. Okay, so now you get rid of your drugs, get rid of your personal care products. Your good address is not good anymore. How much worse could it be? <laughs> Here's where you go to vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida. That's C-A-N-D-I-D-A. Download your free report. Now, before you say, ugh, a free report, this report sold for as much as $895. And the folks who paid that for it did not ask for their money back because they're so happy with the results that they got. But today, it's yours for free. What's this report about? This report uh, is about the healing effects of drinking turpentine. Yeah, yeah, healing effects of drinking turpentine. And that's probably a big leap for a lot of listeners. Um, because, of course, there's been a lot of public service announcements about how dangerous turpentine is, get it out of the house, it'll kill your children. Um, but the truth of the matter is, it's very beneficial for Parkinson's disease. Now, one of my introductions to Dr. Daniels was that uh, a listener sent me this particular uh, paper, this article on uh, Candida. And I want everybody to know that it is the most spectacular read of any article that I've read in the last five years. It will uh, keep you on the edge of your seat because she goes through step by step and she explains how she derived this particular solution. It was quite an investigation, I must say, going step by step and going way, way back in history to find something that worked for people over a century ago that has now been forgotten. So there is a download from her website, and there's also a direct link on the radio show page to this particular paper. You want to download that, and you want to read it. It really is not only informative and engaging, but informational. 
So tell us a little more about how it was that you came across a solution that obviously no one else has thought about. Certainly it's a solution that I have never heard about. Right. So I was uh, sitting in my little office in my little ghetto in my little city block, and I was helping people heal from diseases that I was taught in medical school were absolutely incurable. People were throwing away their diabetes medicines. They didn't need them to have blood pressure medicines anymore. Uh, they didn't need their, their lupus medicines, their rheumatoid arthritis. And it was like, wow, this is great. And I was very discouraged, though, because when people made a mistake and stopped uh, following the diet I gave them, they would suddenly get sick. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I must not really be curing them with diet. There must be something I can give them that will restore them to their pre-illness state. And so once I knew that that's what I was looking for, I was on a tear, man. I bought every single natural healing book I could find, and I've read it cover to cover. And all of them, a lot of them, are just simply ads for some supplement or something. And I knew that that was not the answer. And so I kept looking and looking and looking. And I was homeschooling my children, and I came across this um, document that I read. It was really small, only one page. And it said that back during slavery, that would be 1860-something or earlier, that the slaves had something very powerful that could heal everything, everything. And whenever the master got really sick, he would go to the slave quarters and beg the slaves to please heal him. And he would make them some incredible promise, something short of everything he owned, but he would promise them something. And they would heal him, and that would be it. He would be healed, and he would be able to enjoy all of his possessions for another, you know, 5, 10, or 20 years. So I said, aha, that, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for something that can cure anything and everything, just a general fix-it. And so I was thinking to myself, oh, how am I going to get at that? How am I going to find out what that is? I said, I know. I'm sitting here in a ghetto surrounded by descendants of slaves. So I would ask every patient at the end of their visit, well, every black patient, um, was there something their mother or grandmother used that cured absolutely everything? It was pretty cheap, whatever it was. So I realized slaves weren't rich, right? So it had to be cheap. If it wasn't cheap, it, it wasn't the right thing. So I kept asking and asking and asking. Of course, my patients were middle class, right? Who else can afford a doctor's visit? So finally, um, somebody said, yeah, I know exactly what it is. And they started laughing. They burst out in laughter. Dr. Daniels, you're talking about turpentine and sugar. And I said, well, I guess I am. Where is it? Where do I get it? Just, oh, that's all I know. Can't tell you any more than that. And so that's that's how I came across it. You know, literally asking somebody who was alive back then, which was 1990, about their mother, grandmother, great grandmother, and what they used. And it was really shocking. But I only got about two or three people that told me. But everyone said the same thing: turpentine and sugar. And so I asked them, of course, well, do you use it? They said, no, Doc. That's why I got insurance. I got a job. That's why I pay you. I don't want to take this entire work. <laughs> I said, oh, 
My patients were quite a lot. They they were they really uh, brightened my day. So that did not deter me. I you know went down to the uh, hardware store and got a can of turpentine. Went down to the grocery store, got a box of Domino Dot sugar cubes, and you know just uh, set to work and sorted it out. But you know this. Miracle cure was literally nearly lost. I mean, lost because I only found like three people. I was five thousand people in my medical practice, and only found three people that were able to even give me this much of a clue. And so, due to um, compulsory schooling and separating the generations from each other, uh, whoever's in charge here has managed to totally bury this healing secret. And so in our house, serpentine is the go-to cure. Aches and pains, infections, uh, any problem, there's a turpentine application that will solve it. And all of that is in that report at vitalitycapsules.com forward slash candida. And it's a marvelous explanation for those of you who are listening about how Dr. Daniels experimented with uh, this particular remedy on herself and uh, was able to determine uh, its effectiveness. So for candida, it's sugar, which is typically identified as a toxin for people with Parkinson's, and it's turpentine, something that has labels on it that says this is toxic and dangerous, and if you take it, you're going to die. You're combining these two in a treatment that actually helps address problems like candida. How can that be? Exactly. You know, it's not like I'm not God. You know, I didn't make all this stuff, right? So it turns out that, um, you know, you put together two deadly things and you show up with something that cures everything. But turpentine, just to help the audience get their mind around this, is just the oil from the pine tree. So it's a common um, substance that's literally all around you, and it's extremely, extremely beneficial. The sugar serves as the bait for the parasites. So uh, the way it works is the turpentine coats the sugar cube. So the parasite, even though they know that turpentine is not good, they will go to get the sugar cube. The turpentine covering the sugar cube is maintained at 100% concentration. So, boom, it hits the parasite, the parasite falls over, um, probably more sedated and anesthetized than dead. And the other parasites that don't get taken out, that is, you know what, we are out of here. We do not want to be around. This is not what we bargained for. We thought we were in a nice neighborhood. We are leaving. <laughs> and so that's why people need to uh, clear the path by having at least three bowel movements a day before they try turpentine. Because once you introduce turpentine to your body, all the parasites run to the intestines and they want out. And if your intestines are blocked, they're going to go to your skin, they'll make a rash, go to your head, give you a headache, go to your lungs, make you cough, but they want out. And so that's why in the report, it walks you through how to prepare your body, 
how to get your bowels going, what to do, step by step. Now, I actually went to a a health food natural store here in Olympia, Washington, and I asked the Mm -hmm. owner who's been operating that store for 35 years, do you have any turpentine? And he said, no, I, I, I don't have that. And he looked to see if he could carry it, and he said, I don't have this on the list. <laughs> I thought, well, that's interesting. But it sounds like you actually obtained your turpentine from a hardware store. Exactly. I went to a hardware store. And so they don't and put I had people it. say to me, they said, Dr. Daniels, I, I, I trust you. You know, I've been seeing you for a long time now, but I will not get my medicine from a hardware store. You have to tell me someplace else to get it. <laughs> So what do you tell That's him? That's what this person said to me. I told him, man up, pull himself together, get some guts, and go to the hardware store. But <laughs> he didn't listen to me. So he, <laughs> he went online and ordered some turpentine all the way from California, and uh, it didn't work. He ordered special, human-grade, rectified, blah, 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 turpentine. And so I said, uh-huh. Hmm. But, in defense of the uh, turpentine at the hardware store, turpentine has a very specific application in terms of thinning paints and building materials and all this other stuff. And turpentine is very expensive relative to the fake or imitation paint thinners. So if you look at turpentine in your hardware store, even though it's relatively cheap, it's a, a year's worth medically will run you about $15, um, you will see that it's three to four times as expensive as the other paint thinners. And so because turpentine has to rise to a certain level of specification and applicability in terms of its use in paint, it's actually pretty pure. I have found um, the turpentine in the hardware store, for me, to be totally reliable, and I've really never used anything else. Having said that, um, people have told me that they do like the um, organic turpentine that's available online. So, it works. When this treatment is used, does it also have deleterious impacts on the good bacteria that are needed for digestion? No. The way it works is uh, turpentine attracts, it's very selective, number one. Number two, it also sedates the uh, bacteria. So now even your weakened immune system can do a sort. So your weakened immune system can say, hey, you, over here, out of here, you, Say you, uh, we don't know. Oh. And so your immune system can actually sort through all the bacteria and decide at the dose recommended in the candida cleaner. It can sort through and decide what it wants to keep and what it wants to toss. The so-called bad bacteria, they all just flee. They they run. They just like, you know, man, we're out of here. We're quitting this joint. Yeah. Yeah, so all the bacteria that are causing your your illness, they're basically running the show, orchestrating your misery. They just get up and leave. They're like, man, we were here for the good times. We're not here for the tough times. 
So uh, in contrast to an approach that would say, first of all, before treatment has to be prescribed, you need to have $5,000 of medical tests, and then when we <laughs> determine what's there, then we'll be able to provide a treatment that only costs $2,500. It sounds to me like what you're recommending here is, well, gosh, actually no uh, diagnostic tests are really necessary and no, no, you don't no. really have to go to your website and purchase uh, therapy that costs $2,500. It sounds like then no. your recommendation is uh, go to the hardware store, get some turpentine, go to the grocery store, get some sugar cubes, and sure. you can do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're not talking about a lot of money no, here, right? Thing, no, not a lot of money. Or I mean, if you want to spend money, there's money to be spent. There's always ways to spend money. So you can go on my website, you can buy Vitality Capsules, which help you achieve the three bowel movements a day. If you have Parkinson's, the Vitality Capsules are also helpful because they clear out the bile ducts. And the bile ducts are what is caused your disease reservoir. So that's where the bad guys hang out. So you can clean your intestines all day long, but they're going to be repopulated with toxins and with parasites because your bile ducts are clogged. And, and the clogged bile ducts prevent the rest of your body from healing. So that's why people in your audience, maybe who've done a lot of intestinal cleanses, are finding they really aren't as far along as they'd like to be. So Vitality Capsules, that's one thing you can purchase. The next thing you can purchase at the website is um, I have monthly office hours. So people can actually show up and submit their questions, and I stay until all the questions are answered. So the report is free. Many people can cure themselves just with the report. Um, but if you'd like support, there's office hours, and they're very affordable. At the moment, we have a $1 special, so a $1 introductory for your first month, and then $50 a month after that. To sign up for that, then, people would go to vitalitycapsules.com. Is that right? Uh-huh, and then top tab, office hours. Click on office hours. Great. So I'm going to spell that for everybody once again. The website is vitalitycapsules.com, and I'm going to spell that slowly once again. V-I-T-A-L-I-T-Y-C-A-P-S-U-L-E-S dot C O M. Dr. Daniels, what is the most difficult thing about healing Parkinson's naturally? Um, I think the most difficult thing about healing Parkinson's naturally is people have to come to grips with the fact that um, more or less they did it to themselves. And that's a tough thing because you have to get at least to the point of admitting that this has been caused by things that you have spent money on that you have voluntarily brought into your life. Once you get that, then you have no problem saying, okay, I'm just going to make different decisions and I'm just kicking some stuff out of my life. And I've talked about some things, but obviously if somebody with Parkinson's who's middle class with disposable income, a lot of their spending is linked up to their self-image. And so they've got to unlink their self-image and their spending. They've got to say, I'm not a man because I drink this brand of beverage. Or I'm not an important person because I wear um, 
this or that style of clothes. You see what I mean? So you've got to be able to say, hey, I'm about healing. I can't be standing up and stumbling over my feet. I don't want to get stupid before my time. You know, I've just got to live a better life. And you've got to be willing to spend your money differently. And in a lot of cases, with patients like what people I've worked with, they find they have a lot more income, a lot more spending money at the end of the process because a lot of things they're just not spending money on anymore. And a lot of these things are simply laced, filled with poison. There is an idea out there that once a person is diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, they're going to degenerate. What's your experience with the patients that you've treated? <laughs> I should say observed. Let's pour the whole group together. People who actually take their drugs do deteriorate, and the deterioration is from the drugs. People who go the natural route improve. Um, you know, one guy I treated, he came to me because, you know, he was he just retired. Uh, he was young. He wasn't even 65. And he was just stumbling all over his own feet. And his wife was alarmed because he's been diagnosed with Parkinson's and she could see what this meant for their future. And she was like, oh, no, no, no. We have worked very hard. We have done very well. And we did not do it so we could grow old, you know, with him in diapers. So he did the natural route and he recovered, and he was out playing tennis with his buddies and did just fine. Wow. Um, another yeah. guy um, that I'm working with, I met him. He looked like he had Parkinson's, but that wasn't his, his concern. He was concerned about brain fog. But okay, fix your brain fog. So he fixed his brain fog, and then um, his kids noticed that, you know, that he had that stiff, Parkinson's spine, where everything, your shoulders freeze, and you're like one block. And so he sent him to the neurologist. He said, no, I think it's, it's Parkinson's, and here's, here's your drugs. And he read the side effects of drugs. He says, oh, no. <laughs> I did not get this far in life to go out this way. So then he says, look, I, I want to address this Parkinson's. I want to unfreeze my spine so I can move freely, my shoulders and hips, and so I can, you know, just be a regular person. And so now he's got, oh, he had a tremor, hand tremor that was continual 24-7. And so now he's to the point where he only has a hand tremor for 30 seconds in the morning right after he wakes up. The rest of the oh. day, he has complete control over his hands, and his body, and he doesn't have the afternoon fatigue, no more brain fog. Um, the natural route is just, uh, it's, it's awesome. It's amazing. But it requires that you take a look at what you're doing. You can't have a victim mentality. But if you have the attitude that somebody gave you Parkinson or God cursed you with Parkinson, no. You'll never get better. You won't have the determination that you need to do what you've got to do. If you realize that you've made this disease, you've brought this disease in yourself, and you can get rid of it, then that's the proper attitude. Then you can, you know, go to my website, 
join the office hours, or we can plan it for a discovery session, and I can review with you, you know, your personal situation, you know, one-on-one, and what I think you need to do to get um, get improved. And then I do work with some people long-term, 16-week program um, to help people heal. So those are those are other options. But you've got to be determined. Yeah, you've got to be determined, and you've got to make up your mind that you realize it's within your control, and and you're going to do what you can do. Some listeners have just been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. What would you like to say to them right now? If you've just been diagnosed, perfect. Right now, you can reverse it. But if you take those Parkinson's drugs and you go down that road and those drugs destroy your brain further, then you have less of a chance of improving uh, with any natural methods at all. But So if you've just been diagnosed with Parkinson's, I would just like to say it's not a death sentence. You can turn it around. You don't have to live that way. And that negative future that the doctor painted for you is only true if you do what he tells you to do. He's correct. You will be gone. You have made so many rich and helpful suggestions during this program today. What is the one thing that you would like people to remember about our interview? The one thing is that Parkinson's diagnosis is not a death sentence. You don't have to uh, deteriorate and lead a life of humiliation and debility. Dr. Daniels, on behalf of the thousands of listeners of the Parkinson's Recovery Radio Program, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for taking the time to be on the program today and offer such a fresh perspective on what people can do to be able to reverse the symptoms that they currently experience. Thank you so much for being with us today. You're welcome. You're very welcome. And that's what's happening on, you guessed it, the shores of the Puget Sound, where all the women are smart, all the men are handsome, and all the children are truly loved. Know that by virtue of the fact you are listening to this radio program today, that you indeed are on the road to recovery I'm Robert Rogers, your host. My guest today has been Dr. Daniels. Thank you so much for joining us. May you have a spectacular week ahead. Good day. Okay, bye-bye. Bye.